This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now. Hello Rakesh. Hey Menaka, what is this episode about? So Rakesh, this episode is about simple innovation that has helped save millions of lives. You make it sound like it is some miracle drug. Kind of is. It's about oral rehydration solution. You know ORS, no? Yeah, I mean it's one of the most common place medicines, na? Yeah, it seems common sensical, right? But amazingly it took years to arrive at an effective treatment for diarrhea, especially for children. Also, Dr. Dilip Mahalanabis, who pioneered the use of ORS during the refugee crisis of the Bangladesh Liberation War in the 70s, died this month. Oh, so it's definitely fitting then to talk about ORS in science and us. Certainly. I spoke to Dr. Rajiv Dasgupta, Professor of Department of Social Medicine and Community Health at Jawaharlal Nehru University, JNU as people call it. He wrote a piece on Dr. Mahalanabis after he passed away. And I went to JNU campus and we recorded in a park. So you will hear birds chirping and squirrels and an occasional biker passing by. If this therapy is so commonsensical, what was taking so long for the world to figure it out? Yeah, so after I spoke to Dr. Rajib and uh, read up about it, it's not as commonsensical as it seems. In fact, it's deceptively simple. So let's start from the basics. I asked Dr. Rajib what causes death due to diarrhea. What diarrhea is caused by uh, infectious organisms and the common causes of diarrhea entail about 30 to 40 microbes, different microbes, bacteria, viruses, much rarely fungi, which causes acute diarrheal diseases or ADD, which is how these are generically grouped. But this specific cause can range from say salmonella which is typically through food poisoning to rotavirus diarrhea which carries a much higher mortality. Some microbes or some pathogens like rotavirus cause far more mortality because they actually damage the inner lining of the intestine or what's called the intestinal mucosa which leads to a diarrhea malnutrition complex setting in and therefore untreated rotavirus infection which is actually one of the most severe diarrheas uh, carry with it a very very high mortality rate if this is not treated or corrected on time. The intestinal mucosa is important because all nutrients and water are absorbed through the intestinal mucosa lining. And these contain uh, finger-like structures called villus or villi in plural. So, some pathogens damage the tip of the villi and other pathogens such as rotavirus damage the base and the surrounding area of the villi, which means basically that the mucosa, imagine, of, imagine it as sloughing out because of diarrhea. So a child, particularly a small child or a child with low birth weight, malnutrition, etc. is losing both nutrients and water very fast with some of these pathogens or more with some pathogens than others 
and not only is this is she losing water but she's also losing nutrition which mm. means that she goes very very rapidly downhill mm. and roughly uh, if she loses more than 10% of water mm. that's almost fatal mm. if not corrected very quickly this is broadly how water loss along with nutrient loss uh, leads to the risk of mortality or certainly very high morbidity now essentially what happens is when water lo- is lost the sodium is also lost and the sodium balance is extremely crucial uh, both sodium and potassium these are the two basic and essential electrolytes uh, that that are involved in nearly all cellular functions okay so the loss of water is inevitably accompanied by the loss of sodium and therefore it is really correcting both volume which is water as well as the electrolyte which is sodium and potassium that's what is crucial in the management of diarrhea i read an account about what a child suffering from dehydration due to diarrhea look like i'll add the link to the article in the references will you read the eyes and the cheeks are sunken the face is pinched if the skin is pinched especially over the abdomen the skin folds do not disappear for some time the pulse pressure decreases in fatal instances death often ensues on the second or the third day of the disease crazy right so what were the therapies available meaning what were people giving for diarrhea before ors in various cultural practices they use food therapies which include a combination of salt and sugar you mean like coconut water rice water and all that right yeah i also read about this one swedish doctor who advocated carrot soup someone else said dehydrated banana but these doctors or practitioners lacked information about the physiological mechanism of diarrhea basically they did not know why the salt sugar solution worked and it was on a case to case basis in the mid 1920s intravenous therapy or iv treatment started getting used This required a hospital setup and was expensive and out of reach for most people in developing countries basically as modern medicine developed there was increasingly the practice of replacing or trying to replace this fluid through the intravenous route so at a point when ors comes in just as a discovery or as a principle rather uh, intravenous administration of fluids or saline is already a very established practice but the problem is that this requires trained personnel this requires institutions you can't really do it at home and institutions is something which is really very very weak or missing at that point you don't have a phc and and the kind of primary healthcare setup primary healthcare doesn't exist in 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 that sense and therefore this is highly reliant on institutions it's reliant on trained human resources skill availability logistics and so on and so forth so it's not really available to the majority plus the fact that severe diarrhea leads very rapidly to deterioration of the clinical condition and death or, or near death situations in children particularly small children meant that childhood i mean diarrhea contributing to childhood mortality with or without other illnesses often the child may have another illness but there is background diarrhea and malnutrition so that also complicates and contributes that's that's really 
what contributed to high mortality i read this paper by joshua and ali buraksin i hope i'm pronouncing his name right and this paper was on the history of ors for this episode he quotes one american physician william b greeno the third who was involved in the study of cholera he also worked in many years in dhaka do you want to read so i have been in the field with 5000 cases of cholera when the only thing you could do was drag people who were infected into the middle of the field so that they would not infect everyone else so it was obvious that without some breakthrough you are not going to make a dent in cholera so what was the missing link here in the understanding of the area so it was known that water and sodium needed to be replaced so earlier what was done or what was the conventional wisdom was one resting the gut it was understood it was understood then that the gut mucosa has to recover hmm. this understanding of malnutrition setting in because of the sloughing out of the mucosa was not there uh, as well as the fact that water needs to be corrected or water volume needs to be corrected and therefore this was done through intravenous administration of fluids now glucose has a very positive role in the sodium getting absorbed at the intestinal level and therefore the emergence of what is generically called salt sugar solutions mm. uh and it is that one molecule of glucose slightly oversimplified one molecule of glucose will help in transporting one molecule of sodium across the mucosal layer into the blood but in any situation of diarrhea without the glucose being actually the hero in that sense is glucose so without the glucose the sodium is not going to get absorbed and in fact the contrary will happen because without glucose the if you give high sodium if you only replace the salt that will actually stimulate more losses through urine mm. and the body tries to compensate by retaining that sodium and therefore the kidney malfunction sets in so it's it's a it's a down down downhill spiral that keeps happening metabolically speaking that's why this understanding or this or the discovery of this concept that glucose helps in uptake of sodium is actually the path breaking mm-hmm. uh, me- me- mechanism that was understood so did dr rajib explain this mechanism to you yeah it's 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 like a pump just like you pump water right. so there's a the, there's a pump at the cellular level what's called the cyclic amp or camp so this glucose facilitates the transport or, the, or this pump mechanism for the sodium to be transported from the water which you are taking through your mouth into the blood stream and and that's the bridge that it helps facilitate cross so that the water which comes in through the mouth can get into the blood stream and then the volume and the concentration in the blood can be maintained which is essential for normal bodily function so let's back up it was always known that water and sodium needs to be replaced but what we did not know is that glucose is a key part of the puzzle yeah exactly it took some time to figure out the exact proportion of glucose salt potassium and water that makes oral rehydration solution or ors that's why the other homemade practices may not always work in various uh cultural practices the combination of salt and water including boiled water has been there 
has been there. But the problem, as I said, what wasn't known is that the glucose is required to transport it. That really was the missing link. So while traditionally speaking, some replacement of fluid, whether it's through home-based fluids like uh, like rice water or the pulses water. water or coconut water, all kinds of traditional fluids as specific to the cultures has been there. But uh, the measure of sodium and potassium that's required plus uh, the fact that glucose is required or sugar is required, that was not, not really no. known. It was the research work of many researchers including some failed experiments that led to quote-unquote discovery of ORS. Two papers were published at this time. One was by Norbert Hishon, David Sachar and several others that proved that the solution of glucose and salt infused using an enteral tube reduced net stool output and thereby implying that the absorption was better with sugar in the solution. One of the major players were David Nalin and Richard Cash, who worked in East Pakistan and now Bangladesh. They used oral rehydration therapy in experimental settings. And in 1968, they published results in The Lancet. You want to read this? Our findings indicate that an oral solution containing glucose and electrolytes can eliminate the need for over three quarters of the intravenous fluids requirement in the therapy of acute cholera in adults. Mild cases of cholera without shock may be treated with oral solution alone. Wow, amazing that it took so long. They even carried out a trial at the field level and this was in the Chittagong area of then rural East Pakistan and now Bangladesh. But it was still not being used extensively yet. Oh, is this where our hero Dr. Dilip Mahalanabis comes in? Dr. Rajib describes the backdrop well and this was during one of the major pandemics of cholera that started in Indonesia. The historical context where, where there is very high incidence of diarrhea is the seventh pandemic of cholera which begins in 1961 and within a couple of years it spread to, to the Indian subcontinent. So, from Indonesia, uh, East Pakistan, or what's now Bangladesh in 1962-63 and by 63-64 in India and by 1966 it had spread to uh, the former USSR also. That's how rapidly uh, in the earlier phases the, the uh, seventh pandemic of cholera spread. So, it is in the backdrop of the seventh pandemic of cholera, which by the way was actually triggered by the emergence of a new biotype called the LTOR cholera, which is still the current dominant strain of cholera. So, because this was a new variant, cholera was spreading very rapidly. And uh, therefore, uh, there was this interest on trying to find a solution to this problem. Bangladesh or East Pakistan was already using uh, solution of molasses and salt which was available at home. Uh, so in Bengali it was called Labongur solution which is salt and molasses or LGS uh, as it's termed in English. Molasses is basically jaggery made of either sugarcane or palm as was available in the area. But the point is that that was what was available at home. The factory produced sugar was not that available still. And therefore, this LGS was finding 
a, a lot of traction in homes in East Pakistan. Hmm. That's where uh, cholera was really uh, ravaging at that time. It's when the Bangladesh Liberation War and the refugee crisis starts in 1970 that this pressure was felt a lot more because it was associated with the refugee crisis, with internal displacements, with lack of food, lack of services and everything put together. The, it's the refugee camps that were facing the most of the brunt of cholera, uh, both on the Indian side as well as on the uh, Pakistan slash Bangladesh side. And at that time, uh, the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health was very heavily invested in the research, both on the Indian side as well as on the Pakistan side. And it's the Calcutta team which was uh, battling or struggling with the refugee cri- or managing the uh, diarrheal disease among the refugee camps along the eastern border in, 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 the, in, 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 in South Bengal. Uh, at that time, and that's when they were faced with this crisis uh, of intravenous solutions running out, there not being enough personnel, mm. trained or skilled personnel to administer those, and therefore, this was the this was a humanitarian crisis in its worst form, of not just displacement but with a disease and a full-blown epidemic raging, mm. and that's where. Some of these uh, pioneers, not just Dr. Dilip Mahananubis, but others who, who are equally eminent and legendary, such as David Nellin, such as Richard Cash, these are all young researchers uh, in the Hopkins Center at Calcutta who tried out or were forced to try it out, try out mass administration of something which was still not a mainstream treatment. It was still experimental. But the exigencies of the situation forced them to make innovations because it's still, remember, it's still not uh, available in an industrial form as mm-hmm. we can buy it over the counter today or there's government supply. It was still in the, in the lab uh, development, in the lab stage. The peak of the epidemic was in this place called Bonga, about 70 odd kilometers from Kolkata. Dr. Dilip Malanavis, who was working on research in diarrheal diseases in children, was sent to work with refugees. This is an interview he gave later. You want to read? When I arrived, I was really taken aback. There were two rooms in the hospital in Bangao that were filled with severely ill cholera patients lying on the floor. In order to treat these people with IV saline, you literally had to kneel down in their feces and their vomit. Within 48 hours of arriving there, I realized we were losing the battle because there was not enough IV and only two members of my team were trained to give IV fluids. Dr. Dilip already knew about the evidence on ORS and he felt compelled to use it in this crisis. They prepared premixed packets of dry ORS salts in John Hopkins University Center for Medical Training and Teaching in Kolkata. That's where he worked. And these packets uh, had written instructions on how to mix it with the right amount of water. And this was the first time paramedic workers and relatives of patients were instructed to give this oral mixture freely to the patients. Basically, people with no experience or training could carry out this therapy. And to increase the acceptance among patients who were obviously expecting IV treatment, they started calling it oral saline. Dr. Rajiv told me that the setting is important here to note. Dr. Mahalanovis did not roll out this treatment in a controlled setting, but in a refugee crisis situation. Trial is a very controlled setting. Right. And, and suddenly you are faced with a real-life catastrophic situation. Mm-hmm. 
and therefore two things one they did it at great personal risk and two they had to make all sorts of innovations uh, to be able to produce uh, quite literally overnight uh, not just such large volumes of salt sugar solution but also to administer it to monitor it to keep records and so on after all these are scientists so so they they also want to to capture what the results were whether it's really working uh, whether it's causing more harm than good and so on so there is a period there are weeks of extremely tentative uh, of a very tentative situation it's only after a month or so that it's understood that yes it is indeed helping in bringing down mortality what rates happened? so various studies estimate that uh, what would have been a mortality rate of 30 to 40% was brought down in these camps this is in camp settings or these refugee camp settings to about 5% yet uh, these spectacular results because they were not done in a scientific or experimental mm. context didn't find the traction among the scientific community that it ought to have been plus uh, the medical establishment was extremely skeptic that this is this is a very this is a very uh, refined treatment how much salt how much electrolytes how much water has to be administered intravenously and therefore you can't really uh, do this kind of a Uh, this kind of a very rapid and dirty Not trial hazard, in that huh? sense uh, plus you can't really give it out to volunteers to administer so this whole uh, politics of knowledge comes in at this point mm. that's where the resistance came from the then mainstream medical establishment it's not refined enough it's not seen as scientific enough mm. because it wasn't following the established uh, rigor that mm-hmm. that one would uh, like to mm. and therefore not only did it find they did not find acceptance in medical journals and it also made met with extreme resistance from the mainstream uh, medical doctors and medical fraternity the other important actor therefore in this whole story is someone called dr dhiman borua who was at the who headquarters in the diarrheal diseases program at that point uh, remember these people are not in the who they are part of the hopkins lab mm-hmm. or experimental setup mm-hmm. so borua's role is extremely crucial and borua's textbook on cholera still remains a masterpiece and a classic dhiman borua himself is a 1932 cholera epidemic survivor okay. in, in chittagong in bangladesh so so borua had visited these Uh, these refugee camps he had seen the full blown cholera epidemic mm. in this in 1970-71 i mean he he, he witnessed for himself mm. he was a witness to the power of the ors mm. in cutting down mortality in saving lives in the refugee camps in the refugee camp settings uh, and he essentially testified to the global stage of the veracity or the relevance of it so borua's contribution lies in actually working through this grand bureaucratic maze mm. that uh, as an institution who is uh, because who also has its own technical uh, 
processes to go through uh, those are those are also one may call necessary steps but at least as in this case we see it takes what would seem an inordinately long time uh, for this to gain uh, acceptance. acceptance and though this is 1970-71 when Bangladesh war is happening it is only by 1978 that WHO takes it up as a formal intervention and as a formal program. So this seven to eight year period is very crucial in 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 this this very very miraculous or near miraculous intervention actually being able to come center stage. And and that shows uh, at least as a historical learning that for for science to translate into action and then to find worldwide acceptance, uh, even when it is addressing such a large-scale uh, killer, uh, and given the fact that it's such a simple intervention, it's 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 one of the lowest cost interventions. It doesn't require any grand machinery or anything. It is something which you can, you know, in a sense, democratize very fast to voluntary mm. health workers through through families, mm. in fact. Uh, yet it took such a long time to find acceptance and then it needed a champion like Borua within to be able to do it and that's that's a big lesson uh, of the whole history of ORS. This is a bit of an anachronism because we are constantly looking for magic bullets mm. to very complex solutions but then when you actually have a very simple solution it has to encounter a whole lot of complex institutional mechanisms to find uh, acceptance. The analysis by Joshua Nalibu Raksin talks about how the history of ORS demonstrates the conflict between what is called high-tech and low-tech, between public health and medical research. He writes, and I quote, it demonstrates how the prejudices of the medical establishment and its reverence for advanced technology can postpone life-saving discovery. Guess how many children ORS saved? Millions, I'm sure. So, in 2007, it was estimated that more than 50 million lives were saved by oral rehydration therapy. This was between 1982 to 2007. That is an average of 2 million lives a year. Dr. Mahalanobis, along with his colleagues, Dr. Norbert Hishon, Dr. David Nalin and Dr. Nathaniel Pierce, who awarded the Poland Pediatric Research Prize on July 29, 2002. And we celebrate World ORS Day on the same day. Dr. Mahalanabis also received the Prince Mahidol Award in Thailand in 2006 for his contribution to treatment of cholera. So, the uptake of ORS in India was low in the 80s and 90s, but the usage has gone up systematically. Recent studies have shown the benefit of zinc tablet along with ORS for reducing the duration and severity of diarrhea. The National Family Health Survey 2019-2020 shows that about 60% of children are given ORS during a diarrhea episode an uptick of about 10 percentage points from 2014-15. There is clearly a lack of awareness though still in the community, despite its availability at primary health centers and community health workers. But the word cholera does not ring a death knell like it used to in the 1960s. 
through the 80s and 90s the LTOR variant has become a much milder variant. So, it has become a much milder variant and therefore, mortality in general due to cholera has come down a lot. In fact, as a working rule, it is almost indistinguishable from any other diarrhea. So, the earlier florid killer picture of cholera does not exist anymore except for say some very specific situations such as natural disasters or war and so on. Underlying malnutrition or particularly underlying severe malnutrition which also often carries a seasonal, seasonal hmm. uh, dimension to it would certainly contribute to higher mortality. Hmm. But the near equivalence of cholera with death hmm. that is gone. That is gone. And globally. So, cholera has not just become a milder disease, but it has also become a much more urban disease, mm. urban peri-urban disease where much of the poverty today is located. Mm. And therefore, world, world over Asia, Africa, Latin America, cholera today is largely an urban entity. It does spread faster in the urban environment, particularly in poorer urban mm. settlements, poorer not just socioeconomically, but in terms of infrastructure, uh, where, where it spreads very fast to the subsoil water, adequate quantities of safe water supply, very, very large proportions of urban poor and even lower middle class mm. depend on easily accessible subsoil water mm. and that is how this cycle is kept up, mm. including cities such as Delhi or parts mm. of Delhi. Mm. And this is true of the urban world as a whole. Uh, in, in LMICs or, or poor economic settings. I recently heard of an outbreak in Pakistan during the floods. So basically diarrhea is here to stay till we do not improve people's lives. Yes, I read on the WHO side that diarrheal disease is the second leading cause of death in children under 5 years old and was responsible for the deaths of 370,000 children in 2019. Why is that so? I asked Dr. Rajiv who conducted his doctoral research in Delhi in the early 2000s and he later wrote a book called Urbanizing Cholera, The Social Determinants of Its Reemergence. He says that just because we have good treatment does not mean the reason why cholera and other diarrheal diseases strike in the first place disappear. Poor sanitation, poverty, unavailability of clean drinking water, malnutrition can still cause diarrhea and even death. ORS actually historically arrives on the scene much before or, or somewhat before a greater emphasis is laid on water sanitation, mm. programmatically speaking. Uh, so the international decade of water and sanitation is in the 90s when you actually have ORS in the 70s. Mm. Uh, and we also know that water sanitation largely seen or implemented through an engineering lens, uh, that progress has also been slow. For India, for example, at a, at, at a national level, you had these, uh, these phases in the 90s, but then you again have a renewed phase now with the pres present government on total sanitation, on, uh, on, on water supply at every household level, etc. Of course, those are riding on the foundational work through the 90s, but unless these are 
available and and actually uh, accessed uh, not not just not just uh, it being there at the household level or the village level but these being there in sufficient water being there in sufficient quantities uh, toilets are functioning and 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 wastes are are treated and so on and so forth in in other words unless the full cycle is actually implemented mm. waterborne diseases and therefore diarrheal pathogens are are still going to remain in the environment so the 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 incidence of diarrhea getting lower and the treatment of diarrhea getting better and better and more effective are not exactly same or moving in the same time scale and that's a distinction we have to make and that's a reality check that we yeah most infectious diseases yeah so 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 we can't be having more and more infections or we continue to have infections which we are able to treat uh, better and perhaps reduce mortality but the goal certainly should be to be able to reduce incidence of infections and that's what really makes children safer that sounds like a note to end on Yes, that's all for this episode of Science and Us. Meet you soon for the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now.